Hello, I'm Sarah James, a lifestyle blogger and self-help aficionado. And I'm Kristen Howerton, a writer and psychotherapist. And you are listening to Selfie, a weekly podcast in the Life Listen Network about two women embarking on a self-care bender. We're both of the opinion that self-care is important, and yet it's elusive. And while we may have all the information we need, we don't always get there. We want to explore different aspects of self-care, from the silly to the serious, looking at body, mind, and spirit, and also just some random targets thrown in there for good measure. We also want to look at the defenses and distractions to keep us from caring for ourselves like we should. Hey guys, so today we are going to be doing a deep dive into pubic hair. Oh God, gross. So gross. Did you? Oh, that was gross. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I started started with that. We're going to be chatting about pubic hair, um, all all the things about pubic hair. Um, We're also, on a more serious note, going to be talking about the art of detachment. We're going to be looking at um, why detachment can be an excellent form of self-care. Very good. I love how I look at our, we keep this kind of spreadsheet where we have our subject ideas and it's just, it makes me laugh. They're like, you know, we really should talk about the art of detachment. Um, It's so important to like, you know, not withdraw, but still remove ourselves a little bit. And you know what? We totally should talk about pubic hair. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Pubes. Let's talk about some pubes. Well, you know, in the words of Walt Whitman, I contain multitudes. Yes. You know, (laughs) maybe that should have been the name of uh, the podcast. I contain multitudes. multitudes. That would have been good. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I just truly think that, you know, that's just, that's life. We can be both stupid and absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about some pubic hair. Let's dive in. I'm just, oh, I'm going to keep saying that I think it's so should. uncomfortable. <laughs> You're making me so uncomfortable right now. My face I know is that's, purple. and then the more uncomfortable you are, <laughs> you know, my personality is just, I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> it's your love language, isn't it? It is. It, the, the mocking mocking the, is my love mock, language. You know me it so, is. I, I feel so you. known. Yeah. Yep. 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 To get rid of it or not to get rid of it. That is the question. Right. Do you get rid of it? You know I get rid of it. Yeah. I get rid of it too. But you know, this is one of those areas where again, kind of as a feminist, I feel a little conflicted because on the one hand, I think there's nothing wrong with pubic hair. And if people want to grow their pubic hair, they should. And men should just accept women in their natural state and, you know, like yada, 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 that whole thing. Like I agree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yet I don't want it. No, I don't want it either. And I agree with you on the whole, the whole feminist notion. And I think that was a very big, the big full bush there for a while back in the seventies, was it? Um, but mm-hmm. my thing is just do what you want to do people like each, well, you know, just whatever you want to do with your pubic hair, you can go for it. If that makes you happy and feel comfortable or whatever. I completely agree. And I think we do want to state that from the get go that we While we're probably going to talk quite a bit about (laughs) pubic hair removal, if you want to keep it, girl, go be you. People, I don't care what you do with your pubic hair. There's no shame in having a full bush as God created you. Exactly. It's there for a reason. It's there for a reason. But I just. But I have to laugh because. I feel like on many of these topics, you know, I'm like, yes, women should feel free to go gray, but I'm not going to go gray. And here's how. 
here's how to get the best Brazilian wax ever. Um, right. No. It is like a weird, like cognitive dissonance or even with eating well, like you know, everyone should feel totally body positive, but here's how I'm going to try to lose weight. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You know, my parents are super supportive and I, just the thought of my dad listening to this right now just kind of grosses me out. Dad, just don't listen to me talking about pubic hair right now, but it's well, just- I had a friend tell me last week, she goes, wow, I feel like I know like a lot about oh, you now. And oh, I was like, God. oh, wait. Oh, wait. I know. I know. Yeah. Uh. But mine, my reasoning is not for looks. It's not right. like, oh, I just want it to look this way. I want a landing strip or I want, I mean, all sorts of things. I just like neat and tidy things. I'm a neat and tidy person. Everything around right. me is organized and neat and tidy. I just, that just carries on with my body here. I just like it neat and tidy people. Like it's not, has nothing to do with, oh, I want it to look this way or anything. It's just, I prefer it to be neat and tidy. (laughs) Is that so wrong? Yeah. No. And, and my reasons are similar, but a little bit different. I have sensory issues. And so, you know, what's weird, like a really weird quirk about me. I shave my legs every day. I mean, every single day. Like people will joke about like, oh, I haven't, sh-. like I shave my legs every day. I'm on a safari in Africa. My <laughs> legs are shaven. I am like surviving post-earthquake in, ha- in Haiti. My legs are shaven. I shave my legs every single day because I cannot stand mm-hmm. the feel. Can't Ooh, stand the feel. Yeah, like when hair rubs against clothing. Ugh. Oh, I know. Well, mine really started too was just the fact that I have um, really sensitive skin and when I used to shave my bikini line, the razor yep. burn I would mm-hmm. get, and it doesn't matter. I could put, I could take my time, moisten before, like use a special kind of shaving yep. cream, a special kind of, and no, it does not matter. No matter what I used, if I use a razor, it would turn into the most angry, inflamed red rash all over. And it was embarrassing. And then, you know, living in Southern California at the time or going to the pool or whatever, it's just like this red, angry rash on the sides of your bikini when you're in a bathing suit. I was like, okay, Sarah, I did not, I did not know this about you. I have the exact same problem, exactly the same. Like I literally cannot shave my bikini line. It just becomes a razor burn, bumpy red mess. Yes. And I think this is true for a lot of women. I think it is. And that's well, why so people then, turn to waxing or, you know, I'm right. Gonna, I'll just put it out there. I got my pubic hair lasered off. <laughs> well, I, I attempted and we're going to get to why it didn't work for me because it's so mortifying, but talk. Okay. Yeah, okay. I think you know why it didn't work for I, me. I do know we'll why it didn't work for you. Um, so, okay. So about, this is probably seven or eight years ago. I was so sick of the razor burn. I was so sick of having to go pay to get waxed because waxing is, and it's, plus it's just uncomfortable, you know? It is. So I, I, someone told me about having laser hair removal. So I did my underarms because also I have fair skin and I have really dark hair. And so it's very evident on my body. So mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I'm just going to get my underarms done, which by the way, was the best thing. Cause not only do I get razor burn on my bikini line, I also used to get it underneath my armpits. And so oh. they got rid of that gone. Like I haven't had to shave underneath my arm for eight years. So, oh, wow. Oh yeah, girl. It's, it's the best. It's the best. And so anyway, I was like, well, I'll just go ahead and do my um, bikini line. 
but then I just, I did a little bit more. <laughs> I don't know. I just, yeah, they took a lot of hair off. They lasered a lot of hair off. So, and did it, it took everything off? Like it's all gone? Bye bye. Um, there's a little bit left. I didn't, uh-huh. I did not want to go completely bald because, uh, God, this is really uncomfortable. <laughs> I feel very uncomfortable right now. I'm just like, why did I decide? Why did I, why am I talking about this right now? Um, oh my God, I'm really embarrassed. But, um, Sarah, it's just going to go on the internet. Yeah, it's just, don't it's worry about just it. It's going to go on the internet. Okay. Um, no, I didn't because, well, just, you know, this is a whole nother topic we can talk about at some point, but just the whole no hair at all and the ties to, you know, that became really big with internet porn. And then yes. you have like the whole looking prepubescent thing that just, it, it, totally. it, it kind of rubs me the wrong way, no pun intended, but just, you know, I don't, I don't know. So I didn't No, I think there off. is something to that. Yeah. There is. And I was looking briefly, I'm kind of hopping all over the place, but I saw this article on the history of body waxing. It's on Refinery29. We'll link to it on selfiepodcast.com. I'm going through the history of hair removal all the way since the start. But I was really kind of focusing on the past four or five decades. And it really was more of a full, full hair experience in the 60s and 70s. And then internet porn... And um, the 80s, that, that's when things in strip clubs, like strip clubs were huge because uh-huh. women had taken off so much. So that kind of picked uh-huh. up. But what they were saying when things got really um, non-hairy was in the 90s when um, Sex in the City, do you remember that episode? It was in the third season. So it was like the mid-90s where Sarah Jessica Parker gets a Brazilian wax. And yes. th- they show her face and she's like, ooh, ah, oh. And they talk about it afterwards, how like she got everything removed. Well, apparently that was huge. A lot of women started doing it. And I guess Gwyneth Paltrow had some interview where she said she did Brazilian. So in, it was like the mid nineties where that really took off, where it was like, take everything off except for a tiny little strip of hair in the front, including, you know, meaning around the buttocks, everything off mm-hmm. the, the labia, like gone, no hair. Yeah, it did. And it's really funny because, you know, I mean, when I, when I was in my twenties, I don't remember, like, I don't remember feeling like you got to take it all off. No. Like, I don't remember, like, I think I just kind of went full, you know, full hair down there, <laughs> yeah. except for, except for, you know, you would trim up the bikini line or something that would be seen outside of, um, your bathing, bathing suit, suit or your, your underwear line. But yes. I don't, th- I, to be completely honest, and I really hadn't thought of this until just now, I do think I was affected by all of that because I think that's about when I started taking everything off. Oh, I think yeah. it was kind of like this light bulb of like, oh, oh, it, it's, it, I guess it's bad for me to look like this, like just to have all this hair down here. Exactly. Um, I mean, one of the most popular TV series was talking about and celebrities were talking about it. And then, you know, the media gets hold of it, not the media, like you're watching <laughs> channel five at night, but you know, Cosmopolitan, Vogue, a lot of these magazines that were coming out, we're all talking about it. You know, take it all off, take all the hair off. 
Yeah. And then I think absolutely, unfortunately, porn culture has influenced things. And, oh, yeah. you know, that is certainly how women look in, por- in porn. Mm-hmm. Um, or like you said, at strip clubs, not that I have, you know, delved into either too much. Oh, whatever. But Come on. Be my honest. sources tell me. I definitely, yeah, definitely have never been. Well, I actually, yeah, I went to a strip club one time when I was on a, a trip to Thailand like it was more of a research and it was actually kind of mortifying. Oh, that is God. not my scene. No. Oh, no. But no. Um yeah, it's it I do have a I do have a I feel a little squicky about women looking prepubescent. I do too. You know? Like a, a, there is just that little catch of like we shouldn't we're women. We have hair down there as a marker of our puberty, right. you know, as a marker right. of of being of a certain age. And so I don't know that I want everything to look like. And it does. It it does look a child's vagina. But at the same time, there are women removing hair from their arms, their legs, their faces. We totally talked about shaving all of the peach fuzz off of our faces. Right. But, But yet it is, it is just, it's the way it looks. It just looks prepubescent and we are not prepubescent and we are not. Like I said but earlier, I think it's there I've, for a reason. Well, but... But I don't want it is there. Is it though? No, <laughs> well, I know, okay. right? Because it's like, I think, I mean, I think, you know, historically it was there for a reason back when we were not able to bathe as much or we didn't right. wear as much clothing. Like, you know, cave woman probably wants her pubic hair there. Right. But for me... Um, and while I'm admitting fully that I was influenced by cultural factors to start removing it, uh-huh. at this point, 100, it is, is it is comfort for me. It is oh yeah that I just prefer the feeling of not having pubic hair. And now that I consistently remove it, there have been times like I use clippers, which we'll get to in a minute. Okay, but um, there was a time when mine broke. <laughs> And I was like waiting for my next Amazon order of them, right? And yeah. so I went a couple weeks without, you know, where, where things kind of grew back. And I was so physically uncomfortable. Yeah. Not mentally. I didn't, you know, I don't care how it looks. Right. But just like I was aware of my pubic hair, like walking yeah. around through the day, like, oh, I got to get this off. Well, that's the thing. Once you remove it and you're you're used to that particular feeling, yeah, if it comes back, it's it's uncomfortable. It is. And you know, it's funny because when you have laser removal done, it's not for your lifetime. You know, over time, things start growing back a little bit, which has happened just sparsely, which is even almost worse. I'm like, what the hell is happening? That is kind of weird. (laughs) It is. You're like, (laughs) wait. So, but this has brought up a conundrum for me because either what I'm, what I need to do is go back and have you have touch-ups done. But uh-huh. I got into the habit of getting waxed this summer because I didn't, like I said before, I will not touch a razor. It just it is bad. Right. So I was like, well, either I go get laser removal right now or I go get waxed. So then I started waxing again this summer um, and doing a, you know, a full Brazilian. So I tried to do laser, um, which I have to say, was laser painful for you, Sarah? It just felt like rubber bands, kind of like if someone were to like snap you with a rubber band. Yeah. Over and over and over and over. Did you? Yeah. I found it very painful. People have, you know, said it's not, but I I thought it hurt like a mother. Yeah. 
obviously places that you're getting it, it differs, you know, opposed to getting hair removal on your back or your legs or something. It's, you know, you're doing it in a very sensitive spot. So yeah, it does. Yeah. Have you had, do you have a tattoo? No. Okay. Just for anyone out there, it's not as bad as a tattoo by any means, but it kind of has that same sensation. Yes. I could see that. A milder. Um, Okay. So I tried to laser my pubic hair a few years ago. I decided I was sick of, you know, clipping, which is what I do. I use, I use really, I, I don't have a guard on it. I use really close clippers. Okay. And I just got tired of doing that and thought I'm going to laser. Like, why don't I do this? Why haven't I ever done this? So I went to six sessions of laser, found it excruciatingly painful and I did not get good results. And I finally said to the lady, what's going on here? And she said, you know, I think we're running into issues because so much of it is gray. Oh God. (laughs) So that's exactly what you want to hear. Um, in your forties that I'm sorry, your pubic hair is too gray. (laughs) Oh God. I love getting older. I love it. I know, which it is. It, she is, it's true. It is gray. Um, so anyway, I just want to offer this very important public service announcement to all of you women out there. If you would like to laser remove your pubic hair, do it now. Yes. Before it turns gray. Do it The now. more you know, ladies. The I more wish had told you know. Me. Anyone that's just interested in laser hair removal in general, the, the, the best results are people that have a, a big difference between the color of their hair and the color of their skin. This so is true. if you are an olive-skinned woman with blonde hair, you're going to come up against problems. If you have very yeah. dark skin and dark hair, you're going to have problems. There to needs be able to be to contrast there for the laser. Con- Thank you, contrast. That's the word that I was trying to think of. So for me, it worked really well. Now, mm-hmm. I will say, while we're on the topic of gray, oh gosh. <laughs> so, you know, I told you I was waxing this summer. Mm-hmm. And then I just, this past couple of months, it's just been a little bit crazy and... I need to get back to have the rest of it lasered. So it's kind of been growing in. And I notice just this week, I am like, I am like 80% gray. Really? Yeah. Like I, I, I like audibly gasped. I was like, (laughs) what? (laughs) I even got a hand mirror because... Because you know my my head of hair, I'm probably 5% gray. I don't have a lot of grays at all. And I looked down there and I got my hand mirror and I said, holy moly. You know, they say when someone goes through shock, like their hair turns white. My my vagina apparently was shocked recently. I don't, yeah. Oh, shoot. So now, well, now that's I can't not going to laser, the laser. Off, my friend. Right. No. So we are right back to what do I do now? Am I going to have to wax for the rest of my life? Because I really just don't like it. Well, I don't like waxing either. So th- that's why. So I use clippers. I use, and I will link up to, um, the, they are literally called b- bikini trimmers. I'll link up to them on selfiepodcast.com. But so I just use these really um, super easy battery operated trimmers. I'm kind of like a men's razor. Um, and I pull the guard off so it, it clips it really close. And it's interesting because I can even do my bikini line and it will look like I shaved. 
you know, it will, I mean, I can use the clippers and then go out, you know, to the pool. Um, but it, it's not as close as a razor. So it, there's no razor burn. So but it's almost as close. Can you still nick yourself or as, I mean, like, have you ever, you, you could, I've nicked myself maybe two or three times. Um, and that, you know, but, but if you wanted to keep the guard off and not get quite as close of a cut, you could. Okay. Um, it's, I've never nicked myself on the bikini line spot. I've nicked myself like a little further in, if you know what I'm saying. Well, that's what I was going to um, ask you. When you're doing the clippering, let's just get, yes. yeah, let's, let's dive deep again. Are let's you, dive deep are, into you, the vagina. Let's dive deep into your, <laughs> can we dive deep into the, the, your vagina, like way in there? No, I'm just kidding. Um, are you doing just your bikini line with the clippers? Or are you doing everything with the clippers? I'm doing everything Every, with the clippers. Like with clippers? Everything. All the parts. Like all yeah. of the parts. All of it. Interesting. You're, you're, okay. Well, but what I like about the clippers personally is while, I, you know, while it does take everything off, I still feel like there's like a little bit of hair. So like I don't look totally... There's, there's a nice, I like to leave a five o'clock shadow on my vagina. Um, it's the essence of hair, like the hint of hair. Like there's the hint that I've passed puberty. Oh, Oh, crap. But yes, I do everything. I mean, I, because for me, while the bikini, obviously that part is for public viewing, you know, I'm, right. I'm getting the hair off there so that I'm not mortifying myself and my children at the pool. Right. But I really like the feeling of not having any hair specifically like, like a little further down. You should try it. I love my clippers. They're amazing. It's I super fast. It. Cause just the whole waxing thing. I really like the, um, woman that does my waxing, but you've got to admit, it doesn't matter how close you are. And I, I, I understand that she does this all day and it's no big deal, but you're still, it's just such a compromising position it's violating. you're in. Yeah. yeah. And you know me, I'm a DIY kind of girl. I you don't are. like to go get my nails done, go get my eyebrows done. I like to, f- even my hair, I do almost everything at home right. really just because I'm busy and I don't feel like taking the time. So I don't do waxing really just because I don't feel like making the appointment and paying for it. It is expensive too. It, it is expensive. It totally adds up. Now, have you ever? But waxed how long does a good wax? How long does a good wax last? Okay. Well, this is really interesting. You mentioned that because you know it depends on where they catch you in the hair growth cycle. Because I mm-hmm. can get waxed mm-hmm. sometimes and not see anything for five weeks, or I can be waxed sometimes and see growth within a week. And so. The lady who does mine was saying it all depends on where you are in your cycle, the hair growth cycle, right. not your menstrual cycle, but which is another whole thing. Don't ever get waxed when you're PMSing. Oh my gosh, the pain, Ooh, the pain, right. the pain is so bad. Have you ever waxed at home? Um, yes, I have, Sarah. <laughs> I did wax at home one time. I bought a kit um, off the internet. I'm, scared. I'm already scared. I'm scared. Did you, did you oh, see it on The you Bachelor? Know it went bad. Did you see it on The Bachelor? <laughs> no, I did not. You know, I have so many like gone wrong at oh, home yeah. stories uh-huh. from everything from dyeing my eyebrows to trying to wax my vagina by myself. But yes, <laughs> so I, you know, heated up the wax and had the, the um, 
popsicle stick and I put the wax on me and then I um, put the the paper strip on it. And I did not know that you got to hold your skin super taut. Oh God. Oh my God. You've got to hold that skin taut. So I didn't do that. So I (gasps) pull it off and I bruised so bad. Oh yeah. Black and blue for, for like a week. Oh girl. On my bikini line, like black and blue. And then it hurt so bad. I pulled it off. I didn't hold it taut. So a lot of the wax didn't come off. And then all of a sudden I like go to move and the wax in the crease of my thigh, like sticks together. <gasps> oh my gosh. So, oh no. It was so, it was so painful. I could not get the wax off. And it was such a joke. Yeah. I just, like, so I, dem- <laughs> do you remember yeah, there no. was that Bliss brand, like the Bliss Spa brand? Do you remember that? It was, no. I would say maybe like seven to 10 years ago. And it was like, do it at home, spa, spa treatments at home. And I did the same thing and I bought the wax. It was blue, I remember. And you put uh-huh. it on and it was just, yeah, it was a total mess. I ended up bruising myself too. It was all over the place. I couldn't get it off. Yeah, no, no time for that. It's so funny. Yeah, you got no to go to the store. But I do remember, remember Nair was a big thing for a while for pubic hair. Oh. Like you would Nair the sides. I would just not think that would be so smart to do right in your nether regions. I don't think you should put that down, <laughs> down, down near the inner, inner labia. Lab, what's the, what's the official word? Labia majora, labia minora. Labia majora and labia minora, I believe. I labia, don't know if I know labia, the difference labia. between those two things. I, don't, I just, but that's what I was thinking about when you're talking about a clipper. I'm just going to be honest. We're already, we're really, we're delving deep. I mean, that's, diving deep. that involves like moving things around. You know what I'm saying? Stretching yes. skin out, yes. like pulling. Yeah. Cause yeah, mm-hmm. I, that I'm just impressed, fully impressed. Yeah, I mean, no, you gotta, yeah, you gotta, Kristen Howerton. Yeah, you gotta shift, you gotta shift things a little bit. Lots of shifting, I would imagine. <laughs> Maybe I try like, it. It's really not bad. I'm just gonna put it on Instagram stories. <laughs> <laughs> Today's tutorial: How to clipper your labia. <laughs> Do it. That would do really well, I think. I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I'll let you know. I'll let everybody know. I'll I'll link up to that too. Well, Sarah, is there anything else that we want to say about our vaginas today on the internet? Um, I'm feeling like people now know my (laughs) vagina really, really well. And I don't don't know what to think about that. And I don't know if we're even going to let this thing publish. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah, yes, we are. Oh, my God. This is happening. This is happening. Why? Well, you know, I've had a number of people, Sarah, ask if we are going to discuss another aspect of self-care, which is masturbation. People want a oh, masturbation really? episode, Sarah. Do they? So we might divulge oh, even more God. about our vaginas <laughs> in our masturbation episode. Okay. Wow. See, the thing, the thing that happens is, you know, I, I'm, I'm in my closet right now. I'm in my closet <laughs> with my head phones on and my microphone it feels really safe here in this closet this closet of mine and yeah but it's not just my closet I'm realizing this it's all of you people you're not editing this section out um (laughs) you know I'm going to no I won't I'm not okay I will stick with it I just um yeah so there you go that's my vagina in a nutshell and I hope everyone enjoyed it (laughs) all right right. that's the end of our deep dive (laughs) Okay, so all right, detachment. 
Moving on to something a little bit more serious. So we want to talk a little bit about detachment. And detachment, you know, there are kind of two facets to detachment in the world of self-care. And one is looking at it from a more therapeutic bent, and which is my background. I was a marriage and family therapist for about a decade. And detachment is something we talk about quite a bit in both recovery circles and in therapy circles. Um, There's different words we use for it, detachment, individuation. But the general idea is kind of pulling yourself out of trying to control others and to control outcomes. And then there's also a little bit of... um, a spiritual or Buddhist facet to detachment. And we're going to talk about that in a future episode. Yes. Um, but they are s- very similar. They're just coming from different schools of thought, which I always find fascinating when you have, you know, a religious idea and a therapy idea that sort of match up. Right. To me, it's like, this is probably some world wisdom, right? Oh, yes. Definitely. Because detaching, you know, it doesn't really just necessarily mean from a person. It could be from a situation, um, Mm -hmm. from feelings within yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. I used to always think it just had to do with a relationship with a person, but really it's not, correct? Well, right. And I would definitely say, you know, when you're looking at it from the therapeutic perspective versus like more of a Buddhist perspective, you know, therapeutically, In general, you're talking about relationships or concerns, Mm -hmm. but from the Buddhist perspective, which we'll talk more about, um, I think next week, there's a big push on detaching from material possessions and from, um, from experiences and from, um, detaching from worrying about the way that you come off to other people. Today, we're going to look at it from that kind of therapy perspective. And we are actually going to be chatting with BJ Hickman. She is a trauma-informed master coach, and she is also a Daring Way facilitator. So she is certified within the research of Dr. Brene Brown. She has a private practice in Long Beach, California, specializing in trauma and attachment injury and how those play out in relationships. Um, I have known BJ for several years, and one of the things that really I admire about her. She's been married for 40 years and is a super active parent and grandparent. So I'm really excited to have her chat with us because every time I talk with BJ, I walk away feeling like I just gained so much extra insight. So BJ, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my honor to be here. Thank you so much. So BJ, I mean, I I guess the first item of business here is help us define what detachment even means. Well, you know, it means a lot of different things. It it plays out in so many different areas of our lives, and um, it it I think of it in the context of your um, podcast and the fact that you're talking about self care. And for me, I've the greatest benefit of learning how to detach has been my ability to let go of trying to control outcomes. It's helped me in letting go of scarcity. When I started my private practice, I, I didn't figure out till I was pretty old what I wanted to be when I grew up. And the gift of that was having the wisdom to know how to do it the way I really wanted to from the beginning. So when I started my private practice, I decided I didn't want to dread Mondays. And so I set Mondays aside as a self-care day. And that's my day to do what I want to do. And I only see clients on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. And 
in the beginning, I started worrying about, well, what if somebody wanted an evening appointment or what if they could only do Mondays or Fridays? And I would, I was so worried about feeling pressured to give them those days if that was easier for them. And I just stuck to it. I stuck to the fact that my availability was only on those three days and it has never been a problem. Lo and behold, they always find a way to see me on the days that work for me. So that's one way that it's really helped me because I, it keeps me out of that fear of having to give up myself which mm-hmm. I end up resenting. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, instead of doing what's best for me and my practice, and therefore modeling that for my clients as well. So, talk about you know you mentioned the word scarcity. How does scarcity play into detachment? How do we get into a scarcity model where we c- control? You know, we try to control everything. We operate out of a place of fear of there not being enough. It is so prevalent in our culture. It's what's behind our need to compare on social media. It's um, it's fed by our culture, the the Real Housewives. Um, I'm sure that's some people's guilty pleasure, but the, that whole <laughs> it <was> literally Sarah's. <laughs> <laughs> that but that is where that whole Mean Girl competition that plays out on the on that series is just feeds into our fear that we're not enough, that Mm -hmm. we can't be enough, we can't bring enough to our relationships, to our lives. And then we look around and everybody seems to have the things that we want and that we don't know how to get. And we don't even know that they really do, but we're writing that story based on on what we see in social media. Mm -hmm. And so it immediately sends us into this place of not enough, not enough. I don't belong. Where do I belong? How do I belong? And what do I need to do to get there and earn my right in in the world or in my place in the world? And the truth is we were born, that is our birthright to belong. And we live in that constant fear of not being enough. So when when we get into and in a, when we're attached to whatever whatever our identity is, then that means we have to get our identity from either what we do, who we're with, Um, Our partners, if we have attachment injury, we end up needing someone else to be okay in order for us to be okay. And so when they're not, we're not. If our partner goes through grief, that was my story. When my mom died, I was 32 years old, and I came up through this religious experience where I wasn't supposed to grieve because she was in a better place. Mm -hmm. And for me to wish her back was selfish because she was in heaven with Jesus and how dare I, you know? And so I was just supposed to be over it. Well, my husband's attachment injury was completely triggered by the fact that I didn't want to have sex. I didn't want to do anything. I was so depressed. I could barely function. And he interpreted that as a rejection of him. Mm, And it sent him in a spiral that lasted for a long, long time. He still continues to do work around that. And, um, because I wasn't okay and he needed me to be okay mm-hmm. in order for him to be okay. And so I had to learn the way I actually healed from all the things that ended up playing out as a result of his attachment injury was by detaching from him emotionally because I realized how codependent I was on making sure he did all the right things so we would be okay. I wasn't relying on him to be okay for me to be okay, but I knew that if he didn't behave well, that we weren't going to make it. And I wasn't okay with that. And I had to let go of 
needing my marriage, of needing to keep it intact, of mm-hmm. needing to to keep the wheels uh, on, the wheels on, and appearances up, and all of that. Mm. What would people think? And I finally had to recognize, you know what? It may not work. I may end up alone, and I've got to be okay with that. And once I allowed myself to entertain that notion, I was able to detach in a way that gave me the freedom to do the work I needed to do to heal, which ultimately has been the reason we've been able to stay together. Wow. So how do you think that I'm hearing this and working within your own marriage, how do you think this applies to being a mom? Oh, even more so. Because, you know, I think what, what people might find tricky about the concept of detachment is, you know, we're told attach, attach, attach. I mean, mm-hmm. there's whole theories of attaching to our kids. Right. And then, you know, then we grow or read more or learn that, you know, maybe we should detach. So what what's that what's that middle space of being an attached parent and yet also detaching from them in a healthy way? Well, one of the best things I ever heard um, about parenting and that I actually did, and I learned it early enough to, to be able to put it into place, was when our children are small, we're their managers. We manage every aspect of their lives, where they go, what they wear, all of it. And when they become teenagers, we need to become consultants. And when we can let go of our need for our kids to be a certain way so that the neighbors will think good of us. Yeah. Then we, because then you let the kid, I can remember one time when my kid was probably a junior in high school and he wanted to dye his hair blue. Everybody was dyeing their hair. And there was, there was so much controversy around it. Kids were getting kicked out of school for having purple hair and stuff like this. And I remember, um, telling him, if you want to dye your hair blue, the only thing you need to do is go find out if your volleyball coach is going to have a problem with it. Because if you're not going to be able to play because you have blue hair, then that's not a price you want to pay. But if he's okay with it, the school doesn't have a rule against it. I'm fine. So he dyed his hair blue. And one of my girlfriends went, you're okay with that? And I said, let me tell you something. If the worst thing the kid ever does is dye his hair blue, I have got it made. Yeah. <laughs> and sure enough, it was about the worst thing he ever did, that and, and paint his, his fingernails black. Yeah. And people had such an issue with that, but it was like, seriously, we, we put so much on what everybody else is going to think about our parenting And then we treat our kids accordingly. I also have a problem with the people who the moment the kid turns 13, they completely change the rules. I'm a parent of a teenager. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? I've got it. And they start clamping down on their kids at a time when they're supposed to be letting go. I always use the analogy when our toddlers are learning how to walk. That first time they are standing at the edge of the coffee table and they look at you and you know they're about to let go and walk for the first time, there is not a parent alive that goes, no, 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 you'll hurt yourself. We all go, yeah, come on. And we back up and back up and back up waiting for them to fall because we know they're going to eventually fall. But we're going to be there, we're going to pick them up, and they're going to be fine. That's exactly what we need to do when they're teenagers. We need to back up and let them fall because when they're still in our home, we have some ability to go back and say, okay, well, that didn't work too well. What could we do differently next time? But if we clamp down on them and we control their behaviors and all of these things until they get out of our home, then they're on academic probation in the first semester of college because they're partying all the time. Right. And we can't figure out why this kid suddenly. Right. It's like, no, he's just waiting. Yeah. Yeah. 
and they haven't learned balance at home. No. I know one of the one of the things I've been working on in terms of a parent and detachment as as a mom with an anxiety disorder has been not fretting and not spending time worrying about how my kids are doing socially, how my kids are doing, you know, in their friend group, their love life, not getting, and and of course, you know, we want to think about those things and we want to consider and be available to talk to them, but I could get myself worked up to the point of I'm worrying about them maybe more than I'm worrying about myself. Absolutely. You think about bullying because it's such a big deal and it's, it's the panic button now. The moment we think our kid is being treated in a way that is harmful, our first, in, our first instinct is to just run, run to the school, run to the parent, run after, go after the person. And we don't realize that it's just one more way that our child is learning how to live in the world because there's adult bullies too. And if we don't equip them for staying in their truth and knowing who they are and knowing how to show up, even when everything around them is not going well, then we are debilitating them as adults. And so it's the same thing. We we can't take on, um, well, just like when you think about, like you, you mentioned when their relationships and your kids are now reaching Kristen to that age where they're going to start dating and all of this stuff. And it's so easy to get caught up and it almost becomes like you're reliving your own teenage years. If you're not careful, detachment allows us the ability to separate our emotion from what we experienced at that time and let them have their own because no matter how much they may be like us, they're still themselves and their reaction to things. And our children have advantages we did not have. We're teaching them things that nobody taught us at a much younger age. And we're coming from a much better place than our parents came from. And so if we can just let go of our need to fix it, um, give them answers, tell them how they should behave, but instead, give them the opportunity to just talk about it. Kids just want to, they're, we're all built the same way. We want to be seen and heard. And oh, if yeah. we can see them and affirm what they're feeling, rather than tell them what they should be feeling or what they shouldn't be feeling or what they should or shouldn't do, if we can just let them have their feelings about it, they will mm-hmm. tell us what they need. But when we're already in solution, because we're thinking about that time that that one person did that to me, and I don't want her to experience this, so what can I do to head that off? Then we're going into our own story, and we're not even hearing what story she's writing. And that's the work I do with my clients is really about the stories that we write. We write stories from the moment we're born. We're born with this knowledge that we are worthy of love and belonging. And it starts getting peeled away almost immediately, depending on our family of origin and what we're involved in. But school, bullies, teachers, family members, everybody, our employers, our coworkers, all write stories about who we are. And we take a lot of those stories on as though they're true. Instead of staying aligned with the knowledge that we are worthy of love and belonging, and we start believing that I'm a troublemaker, or I'm a bossy person, or I am whatever, and we take on those identities, our children do the same thing. And every story that happens around them is an opportunity for them to either take that belief on and live in that, or identify it as not aligned with who they are, and reframe it, and so we can teach our children to do that. If if somebody says, 
to Karis, you're bossy. And she comes home and she says, they tell me I'm bossy. You have the opportunity to say, well, what happened? And then she can tell you the story. Well, what did, what do you think? What, what was happening for you? And you let them figure out what the story is and how it's affecting them. And if they're believing the story, and then you have the opportunity to say, you know, sometimes people just don't want to hear a girl have an answer. They'd rather, they're not comfortable with girls knowing being smart. You know, Glennon talks about that, that she knew him instantly. It wasn't okay for her to be smart, but it was really okay for her to be pretty. Mm -hmm. And girls do experience that. And if we can reframe that for them and say, just because you have an answer, just because you are doing this doesn't mean you're bossy. It may just be that you're assertive. And you can reframe that for them. And then all of a sudden, that story, it doesn't become a new identity for them. It actually becomes a reframe of who they really are and how they want to live. I love that. It's almost like detachment from the story. Yes, that's you know, exactly yeah, what it is. From the identity. Yeah, that's, that's, expectations. that's amazing. One of the ways that, you know, I have had to learn to detach from my own kids, and, and you kind of alluded to this in the in the coffee table analogy, but, you know, is really letting them experience disappointment, rejection, heartbreak, um, instead of trying to shield them from that because those are inevitable realities of life. We will all experience rejection, disappointment, heartbreak. And I think it's really easy as a parent to try to play interference there, to control, to get involved, to meddle. But the problem is if we do that and we shield them, then they go off to college and they experience rejection, pain, heartbreak, without us. Um, When it's really so much better for them, for us, I love that. I love that consultant role. It's so much Uh, better for them to experience that, you know, with a soft place to land, but without us getting in the midst of it. But Mm -hmm. it's hard to do. It's so hard to detach and let them kind of fall on their face and experience all the heartbreak that, that we've all had too. Yeah. Well, it goes back to the stories you've written about yourself too, and have been written about you and you're bringing all that every time. So, I always just, I have to pay attention to my triggers. If I'm feeling really emotional about something, more so than what my child is feeling, mm. I'm not responding to their experience. I'm responding to mine. Oh, that's good. And yeah. so when you feel that energy come up, because you'll feel it in your body before it's registering in your mind what you're feeling, pay attention to that and ask yourself, what am I reacting to? And if it's relating you back to a time in your life when you experience something like that and you're trying to keep her from having to experience that now, recognize that that's just going to cripple her. And so then when you detach from that story of your own, then it gives you the freedom to now get into their story and what's going on for them. And a lot of times kids come home and, you know, I, I know not long ago, Lindsay got a call. My daughter got a call about something that was happening with her oldest daughter. And when when Dylan came home from school, Lindsay just had this idea that she was going to be really upset. She wasn't upset at all. She wasn't phased by the situation. The teacher thought it was a really big deal, and it had the potential for being a big deal. But she knew the girl and really had just kind of put it in perspective. And it was a good reminder to us to not build a story up about what we were going to say to her before we heard how she was responding to it. If we can just give our kids room to tell us what they're feeling and what they're experiencing 
our maternal instinct tells us what to do next. Mm -hmm. But when we're already in an answer, we're not even hearing what the problem is, much less listening to our own spirit come back with a response for them. So it really is just about meeting them where they are. And as we say that all the time, but genuinely the best way we can minister to our children is to just hear them out and let them tell you, we know our kids better than anybody. They tell us in their body language, in their silence, um, sometimes in their inability to put feelings to words because come, some kids just really struggle with that. Some kids can just come home and they're just blah, just right out like a machine gun giving you everything that just happened that day. And other kids, you ask them a question and the answer is always, I don't know. I don't right. know. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it, but even in that, it can feel so exasperating because if we're the verbal ones that we know what we're feeling, then we feel like they don't know. But if we give them enough space, they tell us in their silence. They tell us in what they don't do. Um, kids tend to talk more um, at the times when we have the least energy to listen to them. They talk <laughs> well, better. that is the truth. Oh, my gosh. Right? <laughs> that is so they, true. Teenagers will spill their guts at 2 a.m. Oh, yeah. Always. But they're not going to tell you at 2 p.m. No. But right at bedtime. Right at bedtime. Right, yes. Talk. Yes. <laughs> when you're done. <laughs> yep. Every time. Uh. And if we can just give ourselves a little bit of umph. If those, if we, if we're really worried about something with our kids, if we can just find a minute to lay down in bed with them at night and just let them talk. And you're good, Kristen, about the high, low thing. You know, what's, what was your high and what was your low? Those dinner time questions that you've asked your kids, those are great things to do with your kids. Um, and then I got to say, as a grandparent, I've been afforded just the most beautiful opportunity to get to know my grandchildren. And sometimes I get to information that their parents can't get to. Mm -hmm. I bet. bet. They spend every Friday or Saturday night with us. And we always lay down together before we go to sleep. And we talk and then we pray. And um, I always have to sing, You Are My Sunshine to Harlow. And um, I'll always, if I know there's something going on, I'll just kind of spend a little extra time with them and see if I can't get them to talk to me about something. I'll just ask them how they felt about that situation. And sometimes they won't tell me then, but then the next day they'll bring it up. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes it's just about creating the space and then giving them the time. And as a grandparent, it's probably a little bit easier to find Mm -hmm. that space to kind of, you know, to detach from the story like you've been talking about. That's the best part of grandparenting because I don't have to work. First of all, I already know it's all going to work out. And when you're the parent, you don't have the liberty of knowing that. (laughs) That's the truth. (laughs) And so so I'm always, it's so much easier being a grandparent. We don't have the pressures. We don't have any of the things that you guys have as parents that we had as parents. And it's, it makes it easier. And I can just, I don't have to get to those answers, but if I can, I sure want to. And if I can create that space I'm going to be intentional about trying to because I know there's going to be times they'll tell me something that they may not tell mom or dad. And sure enough, they do. And But I have to work at creating that. I, it's not just going to happen by default. Right. They're not going yeah. to just go, oh, I can tell nanny, but I can't tell mom. Right. I have to earn it just like mom, dad do. Well, I have the same experience and, you know, it's something I try to be really intentional about. Like I will some nights kind of gather the kids, 
in my bed and we call it slumber party night where there's mm. no agenda and we just sit there and talk and they tell me stuff oh, they would that. never tell me during highs and lows at the dinner table just because it's it's dark, it's a different atmosphere, they feel more intimate, they're getting away with something because it's yes. late. So mm-hmm. I think that there's something to that. So the last the last question I want to ask you, BJ, and you alluded to it before, is this idea of detaching from what other people think of us and what other people expect of us. How do we do that? Uh, It's a lifelong process, (laughs) and yet it really is pretty simple. Not easy, but simple. It's really about identifying those stories that we're living in, because when we have a reaction to what somebody else thinks we're stepping outside of our truth and into whatever they're thinking, and we're taking that on as our identity. And it never feels right because we're trying to control the narrative. And when we know who we are, we don't need to control the narrative because what other people are thinking, it doesn't mean it doesn't sting a little bit. But when I can remind myself of what the truth is and reframe that story Instantly, that fear goes away because I'm not dependent upon that person approving of me in order for me to be okay. So one of the things I do with my clients is I have them do this exercise where they take sheets of paper. You can use like a post-it notepad or something and just sit down one day, set aside some time when you're all alone for about two or three hours and just start writing every story that you can think of from your very first memory that is not true about you, but that you've carried. And it may be based in traumas that have happened to you or like my husband's grandmother, just she labeled him a troublemaker when he was five years old. And the last thing she said to him before she died was that he was always looking for trouble and she never knew what to do with him. And he lived in that identity and was just debilitated by it. And that was his first story when he sat down to really do this work. And we all have those things. I have a a trauma experience around the dentist that happened when I was eight. And all of these things that happen to us create these stories that we live in that we think are about who we are. And we don't do things. We won't pursue things because of those stories. So sit down and write every single one of them. It's just a matter of writing down. You don't have to do it in detail. Just any words that will tell you what that story was, write it on a piece of paper and just do them as many of them as you can. And then sit down with each piece of paper and read that story and then reframe it. So the story is, I'm a troublemaker. And the truth is, no, I'm not. I have living proof that I don't look for trouble. I am actually, I don't even like trouble. I don't like chaos. I pursue peace in my life. And these are the ways I do it. So now you've reframed that story and you burn the story or you tear it up and throw it in the trash can, whatever you need to do to bury it in the ground and whatever, do something. It's kind of, it's, it's a part of us. It's not something you can eradicate, but the very idea of saying, this is not true about me. This is true about me does something psychologically for us that allows us to release that story and live in that truth. And as we do that, you become more and more secure in who you are and who God created you to be and how you want to show up in the world. And then those stories come at you later and you're like, "Uh uh-uh, that's not true. I already know that's not true because here's what the truth is about that. And then you're 
not affected by it. So when people start coming at you, you begin to see this is their story. This is not me. I don't have to buy in just because they're saying it because I already know it's not true about me. We don't spend enough time really identifying who we are. And if we can do that, it will influence everything we do and how we interact with people in our lives. And it will detach us from those beliefs that are not serving us anymore. I love that. I do too. That's so insightful. It is. I, I want to go and make that list right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much, BJ. This has been incredibly helpful. Um, I always, you know, I'm, I'm super thankful that you are my friend and I feel like every time we get to chat, I walk away feeling just, um, encouraged and like I've got a, you know, a nugget of wisdom to tuck away. And so I'm just really glad that you were willing to come and share with us. You're so welcome. I'm grateful for the opportunity. All right. Well, that is it for today. So Sarah, what's up for next week? Well, we've got a continuation of the art of detachment, but we're going to be looking at it from a Buddhist perspective. And we have a great interview lined up with Sherry Huber, who's one of my favorite authors. I cannot wait for that. And I feel like that is going to be like game changer conversation. Um, I think we should also come back to this conversation around reading versus scrolling and how... This is kind of, you know, our internet addiction is replacing the reading of actual books and how that can be problematic. Yes, I can talk to that for sure. And then we're also going to talk just a little bit as about TV as self-care, about watching TV at night, how that plays into our own self-care and maybe a couple of our favorite shows that we've been watching. Oh, yes, that's good. Thanks for joining us. Continue the selfie conversation with us on Instagram at at selfie podcast and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash selfie podcast. You can also visit our website to check out the resources we've talked about in each episode at selfiepodcast.com. Make sure to subscribe to Selfie on iTunes so that you can catch up with us next week. A huge thanks to Shepherd Audio for our intro music. Take care.